This episode of To The Point is sponsored by Tarsus. Tarsus Pharmaceuticals applies proven science and new technology to revolutionize treatment for patients, starting with eye care. Tarsus is advancing its pipeline to address several diseases with high unmet need across a range of therapeutic categories, including eye care, dermatology, and infectious disease prevention. Tarsus is proud to announce that Xdemvi Lotolaner Ophthalmic Solution 0.25% is now available to prescribe. Welcome to the Pupil Pod, where we use clinical cases to guide discussions on board review topics. I'm your host, Scylla Ball, and my guest today is Dr. Isan Rahimi. Dr. Rahimi is a vitreoretinal surgeon at the Palo Alto Medical Foundation and an adjunct professor at Stanford University. Dr. Rahimi, thank you again for joining me tonight. Scylla, thank you for the invitation. I'm excited to be on the podcast, and I think we'll have a good time. Excited to have you. Let's jump into the case. A 13-year-old girl presents with two weeks of floaters and decreased visual acuity. Exam reveals a visual acuity of 20 over 70 in the right eye and 20-20 in the left eye. On dilated exam, you notice one plus vitreous cell with a focal area of necrotizing retinochoroiditis. Dr. Rahimi, how would you approach this patient with decreased visual acuity and floaters in such a young patient? Yeah, it's a, this is a unique presentation. Um, anytime I'm, I'm, I'm reviewing over cases like these, whether it's in the clinic or for board review with our trainees, I always have to remind them to like slow down because you're just kind of chomping at the bit to rush to a diagnosis. And that's probably not the best way to practice medicine. Uh, I teach our trainees to just treat things as an unknown that we're going to work towards. And when you're trying to form a really good differential diagnosis, it's important to have like a consistent structure or framework to build around per case. And, you know, and, and the way we're taught and the way I teach is you're breaking into big categories. So I'm thinking off the bat, is this potentially something infectious, autoimmune, neoplastic, vascular, congenital, those are kind of our big groupings whenever we're dealing with a potential condition or an unknown. And then I tell, you know, our trainees to just start working based on that. Um, when you're telling me already that we have cells and, and uh, necrotizing retinitis, I'm already thinking this is potentially more likely uh, there's inflammation here. So we're thinking either infectious or potential non-infectious causes at the top of our list. Um, but not to be ignored that this is a young child. And I think that's probably one of the very important takeaways, especially when we're dealing with standardized tests or just even in the real world is that, um, a lot of the conditions that we see in adults, uh, can and do happen to kids and they can present in just radically different ways. Uh, so they can look very different in terms of their phenotypic presentation. So just an example here is just not to lose sight that, you know, Coates could looks like this. It's been reported before Coates is unilateral. That's something more vascular, congenital, can have associated uveitis in some conditions in some cases. And then another important takeaway, again, with kids is just to not ignore the fact that unfortunately, kids can get some of the same weird things that we see in adults that we just otherwise wouldn't expect a child to get. We do see pediatric syphilis. We do see pediatric tuberculosis. 
uh, we do see sarcoidosis in, in kids. And again, it presents in different ways. So I think those are two very important considerations here. Um, once you have that framework and you're potentially have some things on top of others in the list, obviously I'm just treating this patient like they're in front of me in the chair. You want to get a really good history. Um, I want to know more about their, the demographic, um, have they been traveling anywhere? You know, what's their diet like at home? Do they eat undercooked meat? Do they have pets? Do they have cats? You know, do they have dogs? Um, other members of the household, any history, any reason to believe this child may be immunocompromised? Um, have they had any previous cancers receiving treatment? Are they any immunosuppressive therapy? So, so on and so forth. The point being, when you're dealing with potential cases of uveitis, we do a very, very thorough history taking review systems. Um, I'm sure we'll talk more about exam and whatnot, but that's kind of where I'm starting. That's extremely helpful. And approaching these patients with a very open and broad mindset is so important, especially in this age group where we might tend to ignore certain etiologies like syphilis. You have to always keep that on the differential. Let's say this patient is presenting with our classic adjacent retinochoroidal scar. What would be your leading diagnosis or your leading differential at that time? And can you discuss a little bit about what you would do in that case and how you would manage that patient? Definitely. I mean, you're, you're giving some, some of our, our buzzwords here when you're looking at the chorioretinal scar, you have some adjacent retinitis, you're thinking automatically potentially toxoplasmosis chorioretinitis here. And we know this is the most common cause of infectious posterior uveitis globally. Um, some of the classic clinical findings you'd be looking for, at least if you're having it described to you, they talk about the classic headlight and the fog appearance of vitritis. And basically what that means is the vitritis is typically most intense near the, the area of the active chorioretinitis that creates that headlight and a fog presentation. Um, some of the other buzzwords you'll hear sometimes are like Corelli's vasculitis or Corelli's arteritis. That's where you have these beaded appearances of uh, whitish yellowish exudates that can be located within the vessels, typically within the arteries that kind of distribute towards the area of your retinitis. Uh, we know these patients can also get anterior segment involvement. They can have some subtle degree of anterior uveitis. Uh, they have can have fine uh, KPs, keratic precipitates. Their intraocular pressures, interestingly enough, can be a little bit elevated in cases of toxo as well too, potentially from like a trabeculitis presentation. I mean, one thing from a standpoint of beyond testing and just in the real world is we know Toxo can present in various ways um, in the back of the eye too. It just doesn't have to be this classic presentation. Just remember it's on your differential for frosted branch angiitis. It's also on the differential for a neuroretinitis. So it doesn't just have to look like this classic presentation. So speaking of neuroretinitis, what if instead this patient had neuroretinitis on exam? Then what are you thinking of? And how are the treatments different for the two? We didn't really get into the treatment of Toxo, but how would you manage the two? Is there a difference by age, by immunocompromise versus not? Yeah, definitely. I mean, so we'll, we can probably talk in more depth about neuroretinitis. That would Obviously, cat scratch disease, Bartonella hensley kind of jumps to the top of your list. But again, neuroretinitis doesn't necessarily equate to Bartonella hensley or cat scratch disease. It's just potentially the most common association. If I'm seeing a patient with neuroretinitis in my clinic, uh, neuroretinitis, and they are a pediatric patient. I mean, one of my mentors, Bill Benson at, at Wills, the first thing he do is get blood pressure reading. You can be in hypertensive emergency and have a neuroretinitis presentation, um, especially in a child. I'm getting vitals. I want fevers checked. I want um, I want to see what their heart rate is, what their blood pressure is. 
you got to really check for everything um, in a child. Um, if we're specifically talking about cat scratch, we know there's two presentations that are of relevance to an ophthalmologist. One is you got paranoid oculoglandular syndrome. That tends to be more, you get this unilateral lymphadenopathy that's regionalized, and then you can have kind of more anterior segment conjunctival involvement where you get this like conjunctivitis type picture. Um, again, you think typically cat scratch disease for that, but other things can cause it as well too, like tularemia or spore tricks. Those are some other, those rare infections we remember from med school. But then the classic picture that we, we see in our field is, again, is this neuroretinitis with the macular star. And it's just important to understand what exactly that macular star is because it, it's relatively nonspecific, right? You're just having localized inflammation of the anterior segment of the optic nerve head and the adjacent peripapillary retina. And a lot of this exudative fluid can then seep into your outer retina. You get your outer plexiform layer. And specifically in the macula, you have Henle's layer. And due to the oblique distribution of the fibers, that's why these exudates accumulate there and create kind of a stellate or a star-like pattern. Um, when we're talking about management, management of these is quite different, as you, you're aware. Um, cat scratch, and there really is no level one evidence to suggest it should necessarily be treated. Um, but there have been smaller series of using various antibiotics. Um, doxycycline is typically what's most popular if you look throughout the literature, like a course of 100 milligrams twice a day. Again, another take home point when you're dealing with kids is being aware of what is the standard medication for an adult may not necessarily apply for a child. So doxycycline here, how old is our patient? 11, you said? She's 13. 13. You're at that threshold, but I would err on being safe. If you're in a board exam, I'm probably not going to give this patient doxy, especially if it's not like you need doxy for cat scratch you could consider alternative agent like erythromycin, which is preferable for your pediatric patient population. Um, other antibiotics have been used with varying degrees of success for cat scratch, like azithromycin, though it doesn't, it's not believed to penetrate into intraocular tissue as well, probably works better for like your conjunctivitis, paranoid oculoglandular variant, um, plus or minus corticosteroids as well. And then I think, you know, we don't want to like skip over, Toxa obviously has a, a very thorough discussion in terms of treatment um, and, and we can, we can get into all the nuances of it about, you have your, your historic traditional quadruple therapy, pyrimethamine, sulfadiazine, um, folinic acid, plus your steroids. Um, that's what you see in a lot of your textbooks. Um, that class of quadruple therapy is very appropriate in certain situations. For example, an immunocompromised patient, somebody patient with AIDS, perhaps that has toxoplasmosis or a newborn that's diagnosed with toxoplasmosis will need one year of therapy with, with all of these agents, at least with the pyrimethamine, sulfadiazine, and folinic acid. But if you look at it in terms of like what happens in the real world, well, you know, it's tough to get access to some of these medications. Um, pyrimethamine is a, is a whole different issue itself. You guys probably remember all that stuff with PharmaBro some years back. That was Daraprim, right? That was one pill of that cost $750. And while it's not that expensive anymore, it's still actually quite expensive to get uh, access to that. And we also know pyrimethamine is what leads to potentially leukopenia in close to a quarter or a third of patients. And hence, that's why you then treat them with folinic acid or leucovorin. So a lot of our colleagues have shifted to something that's potentially more readily available, is cost-effective and cheap, which is Bactrim. So sometimes patients are on Bactrim twice a day dosing of your double strength. Um, but maybe a patient can't get either Bactrim or sulfadiazine because of a sulfa allergy. So yeah, this is where it's, 
it behooves you to be aware of all the different types of treatment. So we also know from our literature that actually azithromycin works pretty good too for treating toxoplasmosis, 250 POBID and or uh, adding oral uh, clindamycin. The dose is 150 milligrams four times a day. And then in some cases, it's been well described where you can treat with intravitreal clindamycin plus or minus um, adjunct dexamethasone. I remember I did my residency at UCLA um, and one of our county hospitals we were at, we would see many toxo cases on a weekly basis. Here, I'm in Palo Alto. I'll see maybe three of them in here. It's totally different back then. But what was so interesting about our population down at UCLA that we took care of is a lot of these patients had latent TB and you wouldn't necessarily want to be putting them on systemic steroids or some of these systemic meds. So intravitreal clindamycin plus dexamethasone, that was kind of like our go-to and it works great. I mean, you give them, you give typically weekly injections, you know, anywhere from four to six injections. And I think at least the other point to touch base on with toxotherapy is, is that is when to incorporate corticosteroids. Um, at least the way I was taught was you start with your, your, um, anti-parasitic anti-protozoal therapy, at least for the first 48 to 72 hours. And I'm usually bringing that patient back in two to three days to assess their response to it. And then provided they're responding as I expected, things aren't getting worse. Then I add the systemic corticosteroids at that point. You could typically, you can consider putting them on some local uh, therapy, like topical pred drops, if they have a significant anterior segment infl inflammatory response as well too. And how long would you expect before you start to see improvement and which patients do you consider maintenance therapy for? Good question. I mean, this is something you have to have a, a reasonable uh, follow-up plan to see these patients. As I mentioned initially, like right when I'm seeing someone, I'm starting them on therapy. I'm usually bringing them back in a couple of days to assess their response and then making the decision about steroids at that point. I may see them back in another week after that and then every couple of weeks thereafter. Um, but you're essentially watching for that that area of necrotizing retinitis, that, that whitish involvement of the retina to start condensing, consolidating over time. If you had Chiarelli's arteritis or vascularis, you're looking for that to kind of involute. You're looking for your vitritis to start calming down and then things to kind of start settling into a scar. So you're assessing for that type of response as you see them. Typically, this happens over a four to six week time frame. Um, but in some cases, we know that some patients need um, a kind of a lower dose of therapy as maintenance for even up to six months in some cases. And those types of patients are, are somebody who may be immunocompromised, a patient who has HIV or AIDS. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes you're getting tipped off that this may be a possibility if you're seeing somebody who has multifocal toxoplasmosis, retinitis in an eye, or they have bilateral involvement in the eyes, you don't want to lose sight of that. You may want to um, elicit for a history of HIV or AIDS or potential risk factors for it and test for it appropriately. Because in that case, not only are you dealing with the eyes, but you're likely dealing with disseminated disease, including in the brain. And you do need to image those patients and get them uh, to a higher level of care. This episode of To The Point is sponsored by Tarsus. Tarsus Pharmaceuticals applies proven science and new technology to revolutionize treatment for patients, starting with eye care. Tarsus is advancing its pipeline to address several diseases with high unmet need across a range of therapeutic categories, including eye care, dermatology, and infectious disease prevention. Tarsus is proud to announce that Xdemvi Lotolaner Ophthalmic Solution 0.25% is now available to prescribe. So switching gears here a little bit to 
rarer infectious etiologies in the retina. And these are etiologies, I mean, some of these I've only seen once or twice during my training, but these are important to know because these are not to miss diagnoses. So what if this patient with decreased visual acuity and floaters, just like our patient, but instead they had granulomas in the periphery, what would that make you start thinking about? How would you manage that patient? Can you tell us some of the key points to remember here? Yeah, granulomas and with this type of presentation, especially unilateral, you're starting to think about toxicoriasis right now. Um, and again, you're right, it's kind of like a zebra. We tend to see it more in books than not. I've taken care of two cases in my entire career, that's including training. So you typically will not see this. Uh, but we know this is a parasitic infection that's caused by roundworms found in dogs and cats. So your two subtypes, Toxicara cani, uh, canis and Toxicara um, cati. Um, they te it tends to be more prevalent, they think, in warmer region climates. So the closer you get to the equator, the more likely you are to, to encounter it. Um, during the brief, like, systemic disease state, you know, patients can be, like, transiently febrile and have eosinophilia. That's why back to the beginning, like, you know, that, that patient, if I'm looking very broadly, when they came in, like, what type of serological workup would I have initiated for that patient? I'm going to get, like, a CBC with differential, uh, just checking for any abnormalities and and white count and eosinophils and other blood counts as well too. In addition to all the kind of the, the, the serologic things we check for like RPR, FTABS, um, ESRs, uh, your, your Toxo, IgG and IgM, not to, to go off on a tangent, but that's one thing I, I see create confusion sometimes for our trainees about the use, the utilization and utility of Toxo, IgG and IgM. Um, some people argue to never get it. I actually do order it not because of it, if, if it's confirming positivity, but in the in it being negative, that's essentially ruling out toxo at that point. If you're negative on your toxo serologies, then I'm not necessarily worried about that on my differential anymore. So that, I do think it adds some utility to order those serologies. Uh, same could be said for Bartonella henselii serologies when we're looking for potentially cat scratch. And in some of these cases, I've, I've done it a handful of times when we treat these as unknowns, take an AC tap, send it off for PCR analysis, if we're potentially worried about something viral, you can get HSV, VZV, CMV, Toxo PCRs obtained readily from an ACTAP, which is a pretty safe uh, procedure. I'd be a little bit more hesitant about obtaining vitreous again in a 13-year-old child here in the clinic. That's, that probably carries increased risk of morbidity. But back to this, this particular patient with uh, Toxocara, they're usually presenting to you unilaterally these tend to present with a lot more inflammation and they have lower acuity off the bat. The majority of these patients are presenting with under 2040 vision. And the textbooks talk about three classic uh, presentations, if you will, of toxic care on the back of the eye. One is you can have this like fulminant chronic endophthalmitis picture. It's just like severe panuveitis everywhere. And then the next two are you, you have either granulomas in the posterior pole, you have granulomas all the way in the periphery. And if they have it in the periphery, they typically talk about it being associated with these tractional bands in the vitreous that are causing dragging on the macula, right? And I think that's that's another big buzzword for tests is you talk about it, this type of a picture with macular dragging, straightening of the vessels, strabismus, exotropia, leukocoria is another buzzword you'll hear with this, then you should be thinking about this. So that's just good to add to your differential when you talk about, hey, macular dragging, straightening of vessels. Well, we already think about ROP. We already think about fever. Don't forget about Toxocara. Um, in that list as well, too. So when we want to kind of secure the diagnosis here, you could do a serum ELISA test, or if this patient happens to end up needing a vitrectomy, just submit, submitting the 
you know, your vitreous specimen fluids uh, for serologies at a certain titer can be diagnostic for it. Um, I think something that's really challenging about managing these patients with toxic care in the few I've seen, they honestly don't do that great. I mean, the, the visual prognosis is fairly guarded for them. I think medical therapy is done anyway as a first line. We're not sure how great that actually works. I think the first line is typically to give them like a five-day course of an albendazole. Um, whether or not that works that great, I think you often end up having to incorporate other things. And one of the mainstays is usually, again, systemic corticosteroid therapy uh, to help guard against like the severe inflammatory response that these patients get. And that's, again, when you go back to the beginning, when you look at this as an unknown, why some people say, why are you getting RPR, FTABS, quantifiron? This picture doesn't look anything like that. And while I wouldn't disagree, I think TB could definitely look like this. Syphilis probably doesn't look like this, but why do we check for these things anyway? Is because we know we there's a high likelihood of incorporating systemic immunosuppression in these types of patients, be it with steroids. And it's important to make sure they don't have any latent disease that may not be showing up in the eye, be it TB or syphilis. So, and if we're, if your medical therapy is not working, then that's where I mentioned we have a lower threshold, I think, to potentially take these patients to surgery with vitrectomy, clear out all the fibrosis, tractional bands. They could have a TRD already. Um, people talk about treating those lesions directly with uh, double freeze technique, uh, cryother cryotherapy as well too. But I just think one thing I mentioned is the, the visual prognosis can be a little guarded with, with these particular patients because it could be an aggressive infection. I think what's most important is just to remember there's just no role for anti-helminthic therapy here. And like you said, the primary treatment is for that robust inflammatory response with steroids. And I think such a valuable pearl that the reason that we get these tests is number one diagnosis, but also so that we can guide our management and safely manage our patients without causing harm. So one more curveball here. What if this very same patient with decreased visual acuity and floaters instead had clusters of yellow, white, outer retinal and choroidal lesions? How is this different from toxocariasis? How do you treat those patients? Again, I personally have never seen this. So I'm learning just as much as our listeners right now. Yeah, I think uh, you're talking about another parasitic infection, which is from our subretinal nematode. So this sounds more like your, your Duzen, diffuse unilateral subacute neuroretinitis. And actually, so it's, it's interesting that you presented it that way because you're, you're talking about the presentation of Duzen in its acute state, right? In its acute inflammatory state, which I find even rarer, right? The, the very few Duzen cases I've actually seen are the end stage Duzens, where you're talking about this like diffuse unilateral RPE wipeout in an eye, right? And you, you know, I think again, it's a, it's a buzzword for tests. They, like they come to you misdiagnosed as RP or like unilateral RP retinitis pigmentosa, and they're not. Uh, but so you're describing more of this acute presentation, which again, I, I don't think we typically catch them at this stage, but if it's presented to you as such, you're looking for the, the classic, you know, S-shaped nematode somewhere in the subretinal space. They maybe have a, a zoomed in inset of the picture to, to give you a clue. Um, acutely, their, their visual acuity is usually like significantly dropped. It's like out of proportion to what you would expect on the examination. Then you see these scattered lesions everywhere. That's from the migration of the bug and it's causing inflammation and, and tissue destruction everywhere. Um, and then we said at the, the later stages, you, you get basically get an RPE wipeout. It's always important to just be aware of like, what are the bugs, you know, like what are the bugs that are associated with this? Bayless Ascaris is the classic one. That's the number one most common cause 
Um, and that's found in, in raccoons. And then you're next to our Ancelostoma and Toxocara, and those come from dogs. Um, the treatment of this is pretty unique because it's, it's not, again, it's not like, you know, anti-helminthic therapy or something systemic. You're actually supposed to like laser them um, and actually like burn them with laser photocoagulation. And I remember at one of our retina meetings, somebody did present a case of this and it's not as easy as it sounds as we learn is because they move and they're, you're not, it's not easy to, to, so we saw like all these track marks from laser and then they eventually, they eventually got the nematode and killed it. So that is the way you treat it, which is pretty unique. It's always so fascinating to think about these living inside the retina and trying to laser a moving target. I mean, I can only imagine how challenging that is, but also how disturbing it might be to both the patient and the provider to have to do that. So all of that being said, let's circle back to our original patient. Now, let's assume that they had toxoplasmosis retinitis. How would you counsel them on the prognosis? Again, they're young, you're treating them fully. What would you tell this patient and their family? Yeah, I think uh, one consideration too is where exactly is the area of involvement, right? And that, that sometimes directs how we treat them and how aggressively we treat them too. So lesions in the macula, lesions that are close to the optic nerve, um, I'm actually more inclined to want to treat with intravitreal injections. You, you're trying to like protect that vision as soon as possible, rather than be on, on something for four to six weeks after a lot of damage potentially has happened to that patient's vision, especially in a child. So the location of the lesions is, is a paramount consequence. Um, also the re other reason the lesion location is important is if you're dealing with macular or, you know, peripapillary lesions, there's a risk that they could actually develop a choroidal neovascular membrane at some point, potentially later in their life. And we've seen plenty of case reports of these where these patients then end up being uh, responsive to an anti-VEGF therapy. So that's one thing I would guide a patient and or the parents on, depending on the location of these lesions. Um, otherwise, we know there is a chance that they can recur again at some point in life because um, it's not that you're eradicating the affection per se. It's just that the cysts are going into a dormant state in the scar and they're prone to potentially recur in the future. Again, in this child, um, I'm paying attention to things like, is there bilateral involvement? Is there multifocal lesions? Is there a reason to be trying to uncover some um, systemic immunocompromised state in this patient, be it HIV, AIDS, uh, neoplasm, or another? And once we've confidently ruled that out, we would treat this patient uh, with the therapies we discuss, and I'll actually continue to monitor this patient at a, at a longer-term interval, and obviously give them always very good return precautions should they need it. This patient is 13 now. They're potentially outside of that amblyopia window. But when you're dealing with patients under 10 years of age, again, pediatric pearls, you always want to keep this in mind. If they may need concurrent management with a pediatric ophthalmologist to, to make sure you're, you're protecting them against the development of amblyopia. What a great discussion on retinal pathology. Dr. Rahimi, thank you again. Before we end the episode, I ask all of my guests, if you could have dinner with one person from any time or place in the history of humanity, who would it be? Well, so I, I had an answer prepared and then um, I'm going to kind of cheat here because I don't even know if I'm breaking your rules, but I'm like a, a big movie nerd. And, and I one of my movies, favorite movies of all time, and I, I just saw it again recently, was Interstellar. And it, just the concept of it gets better and better over time, too. I don't know how, but just the concept of Matthew McConaughey chasing through time to get to his daughter. And by the time he gets to her, uh, Murph is like as old, if not older than him. And that, that always just sticks with me now more than ever. Cause I have, I have two younger daughters myself. They're, they're four and two. And it just, in a sad way, it makes you think like, 
you know, the, the, the relationship of a parent and child, you'll never necessarily be on the same level in terms of like mental maturation, in terms of where you are in your lives. Like they're always like a generation apart. So if I could cheat, I would, I would go to that future. Who knows if I'm around or not to see both of my daughters um, and their older life, talk to them about their life. Hopefully they had a family, hopefully they had their kids. I think that would, I would, I would value that dinner interaction over anything else in history. That's such a beautiful answer. I haven't heard an answer like that one. And we love seeing girl dads and especially girl dads that love their daughters as much as you clearly do. (laughs) I definitely can't wait to see you decked out in all pink gear going to a Taylor Swift concert with your teenage (laughs) daughters one day. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Dr. Rahimi, thank you for joining us on this episode of The Pupil Pod. So thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun. And thank you to those tuning in. See you next time on The Pupil Pod.